Alright, we've gotta we gotta make some tracks because we have a kids party going on uh, when this is over. And uh, man, he asked me to be in the Duncan booth today and I'm just looking around and I don't think there's a kid in here that can put me in here, so So I see I see a lot of I see a lot of you saying that you can, but we'll see it. We'll see it when it happens. Um Let's, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we pray that you be with us today. We pray that you speak to us, Holy Spirit. We just need you to, uh, to indwell, to be in us, to be with us, Father. We, uh, we ask that you, you just minister to our spirits, Lord, set our hearts on fire for you. And uh, we ask all this in, in, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Um, we, are, we are walking through the last week of the life of Jesus. And uh, you're like, wow, we've been doing that for a while. Well, Listen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, those are the first four books in the New Testament. If you, if you, if you don't know, the Bible is in two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is God creating the world, choosing a people, promising that a Messiah, a Savior, would come through those people. Those are the Jews. Jesus comes through them. All sorts of things are prophesied about him. When he shows up, boom, that begins a new law, a new covenant, um, or, or as we call it, a new Testament. And, and so the first four books in that New Testament are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, uh, two of those are firsthand eyewitnesses. The other are firsthand surveys. In other words, somebody went around and surveyed eyewitnesses and sort of got a collection of stories and put one story together. And so you have those four Gospels. We're going through really all four of them, just checking out the last week. And we are up to the point where Jesus has been betrayed into the hands of men, okay? Uh, He was exchanged for Barabbas. This was all covered last week. And then he goes through these trials. They're pretty bogus trials, uh, but we know that he is up to the, the Roman prefect, Pilate, and Pilate says, I can find nothing wrong with this man, sends him to Herod. Herod is a contractor client king, and Herod says, I can find nothing wrong with this man, but the only other power that can do anything, the third power, which is the religious power, the very one who should have seen Jesus for what he actually is, is the one who said no we condemn him to death. And so Pilate goes to them and says, I can find nothing wrong with this man. His wife says, I've had a dream, have nothing to do with this man. Pilate gets a bowl and washes his hands and says, I am innocent of this, which, by the way, meant nothing. Okay? But he says, I am innocent of this. And, and the people are there, and, and the religious rulers come in and get the people all sorts of fired up about Jesus. And they begin to yell, crucify him, crucify him. So from this point, uh, Pilate has Jesus flogged again. Jesus has already been flogged. And if you know anything uh, about the, the flogging that the Romans would do, uh, they had a whip, but it was more like a scourge. It wasn't something, it wasn't like a bull whip uh, like we know of down here in the south. Uh, this was more something that had a bunch of braids that came off, and they would take sharp things and weave them into it, and they would wrap it onto the skin of Jesus and jerk it off, and so it would, 
it would skin it would skin Jesus alive, basically. And so, uh, so Jesus had already really been shredded. Now they had something for their beatings. They would say the forty lashes minus one, and so uh, they were not allowed to do over 40 lest they kill someone. And so they'd always do 39 lashes. And so with Jesus, we think uh, that he did not receive this mercy, and he was actually whipped multiple times. And then uh, they give him uh, pieces of his cross that he will now carry to the place called Golgotha. Uh, Golgotha in our language actually means skull, okay, so the place of the skull. Uh, another name for this would be Calvary. So if you've ever heard from like an old song or something that Jesus died on Calvary, they're literally talking about the hill that he died on. It is a point of contention when you ask which hill he died on. Personally, I sort of think it's the hill that has a cliff that looks like a skull, it seems a little on the nose to me, but many will debate me on that, and I dare not get into that because, really, come on. Regardless. Now, Jesus is going to carry his own cross up to this hill. Now, he will have to travel outside of the city because, remember, Jesus is going to take the place of every Old Testament sacrifice. And so, Remember, we talked about a sacrifice last week that would have to be carried outside of the city. And so to symbolize this, Jesus is going to take his cross and he will carry it outside of the city. Did he really take his cross? Now, we have this today. Uh, This is actually a decent uh, representation of the cross, and I will tell you why. Uh, But we have a stand where they would have had uh, the cross put into the ground. Now, Jesus probably did not carry something that looked like this. He would have had only uh, the main beam, so he would have take, take this cross beam off. He would have probably just been carrying one section of that cross. But remember that he had been beaten so badly, remember, he had received the whipping that they reserved only 39 lashes for, lest they kill someone, And he had received probably more than 40 multiple times already. So he's a dead man walking because you're like, well, but it's God. But he was fully human. He had the full human experience. As bad as it would have hurt you, it hurt him, okay? And so you have Jesus taking probably just one section of this. Could it have been the whole cross? Possibly. We don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, But we do know quite a bit about crucifixion because crucifixion was like the Romans' thing. They knew how to do this. In fact, when they come in and just massacre, massacre Jerusalem in 70 A.D., which is why we think most of the Bible is written before 70 A.D., uh, they're going to crucify well over a million people. They will literally deforest the entire land. They will cut down so much wood uh, for the crucifixions because they like to crucify people and set them on the road. And uh, so, of course, at, m- at many times through history, as you travel into Jerusalem, you would have passed crosses similar to this. Now, one of the reasons I will say that they are similar to this is this is actually a decent representation of height. We have a lot of pictures, and we see a hill, and we see Jesus like on top of a telephone pole. Well, that's really, really impractical. Uh, So 
this is actually decent height because after the cross goes down in the ground, uh, Jesus probably would have been only a few inches higher than a normal man. So this is a pretty decent representation. Now keep in mind, now imagine in your mind that this is laid down. They're going to take Jesus and place him on this cross. They will stretch his hands out and they will drive nails uh, through his hands. Now uh, many have tried to describe how this would work. Uh, let, let me just give you this. And, and the Romans knew what they were doing. By the way, Jesus was the one billionth person that they had crucified. So this was not a new thing. Uh, they knew good and well what they were doing. So uh, they would have nailed through Jesus' hands in a way that uh, it did not break any of his bones because Jesus is going to be our sacrificial lamb that could not have a broken bone lest it be an unacceptable sacrifice. So it's going to slip through. Now some say he would have actually been crucified with the nails going through his wrist because the hand would not be tough enough and the nails would have ripped out of his hands. Uh, but others say that there are too many nerve endings here and a man would die from that pain. And so there's sort of a hybrid location that many think that he would have been pierced through. Okay, And the other thing is they would have pulled his feet up and then nailed through both of his feet into the cross. Uh, now this is important that he will have bent knees because as a man is hanging on the cross, bent knees are how he will stay alive, okay? Have you ever been doing pull-ups and you know if you're me, you've gotten to three and you wanna get to four and, and you're hanging there for a minute trying to catch your breath but actually the opposite happens because what what happens? Some of you, maybe you're in jujitsu. What's better than, than just a neck in the headlock? An arm and the neck in the headlock, right? And so uh, as his arms are up, he can't, he can't breathe. Go home and try it. Have you all seen the two-minute challenge where you get money just for hanging for two minutes? And so what they would do is actually push up on the nails in their feet, believe it or not, so that they could catch their breath. Now, that's going to come in later because uh, the Romans like for people to die a long, painful, suffering death, but the Jews had a Sabbath. They did not like for people to be out and exposed. That was a breaking of their religious law, and so when they had to kill people more quickly, instead of murdering them, spear through the heart, what they would actually do is break their legs. Now, when I say break their legs, I mean iron mallet shatter their legs. The reason is so that they could no longer pull up to catch their breath, and they would die faster from asphyxiation. So I know that's graphic, and, and I, I do apologize for that, but you do have to understand that the night before Jesus died, he was sweating drops of blood because he was so nervous. He knew exactly what was coming. And I want to point something else out that no one ever thinks of. I was actually in a play one time, and I played the role of Satan. They said I was born for it. Uh, but the guy playing Jesus couldn't be there one day, and, and, you know, we're doing our best, and they pull me up on the cross. They said, here, take his place. And so they pull me up on the cross. Well, you know, there's a bunch of guys hoisting me over and they have a floor, a, a hole cut in the floor. 
And when the cross got to this point, and I'm just holding on, that part, man, it tweaked my back because I just was not expecting it all. And then I thought, ooh, what if I were nailed to this? And so uh, he, he is going to undergo an excruciating death. Now, when he is dead, because he will only hang for about six hours, remember that his body is so beaten and he has so much exposed to the elements that is not supposed to be exposed. Uh, at some point, we see that he was, it's said that he was unrecognizable as a man. He is so beaten that he will only hang for about six hours. Now, there are two who will hang with him, and they will have their legs broken so that they will die before the holy day comes. Uh, but Jesus, remember Jesus cannot have a broken bone, or else he is not a perfect, acceptable lamb sacrifice. Uh, Jesus will be checked with a spear, and so they will spear him through the side, and it says that blood and water will come out. And so um, there's actually a really good book written. Lee Strobel has written many books, Case for Christ, Case for the Cross, Case for Easter. Uh, but in interviewing many people, they say that the, the sign of the water coming out was a picture that he died from asphyxiation. So water would have uh, come up around his lungs. And so this is the reason that water comes out uh, is because it's more proof that he died uh, from suffocating Right? He just didn't, he no longer had the energy to pull himself up. His body was so weak and beaten that in six hours he was dead. And so they spear him through the side, blood and water come out. And so there is no need for his legs to be broken. When he dies, he has to be taken off and taken care of before the holy day comes because you cannot touch dead bodies according to the Jewish law. Uh, so a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea has a tomb, a tomb that was made. This would be some sort of hewn out of rock. If you go to Jerusalem today, there are two locations that we think are possibly uh, the tomb that Jesus was placed in. Uh, regardless of which it is, this is something uh, that Joseph is going to give to Jesus, and it is a big, big gift. Th this would have cost a lot of money because it would have taken a lot of labor uh, to cut this out. Tombs then were going to be different. Uh, they would have been hewn out of rock. There's some kind of stone that's going to uh, block a doorway. Well, why not just a grave? Because they're actually going to lay his body. Their embalming processes are different than ours. They're going to lay his body on a table. Again, the tomb has to be good enough to, for a table to be in there, and then they will go away, and a week later they will roll the stone away so that they can come in and then put the bones of the body into a certain thing that they do. There's a whole ritual that goes around these burials. And so this is the reason that uh, that you see Jesus being buried the way that he is, okay? So he's going to be buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and then everyone goes home, except for there's going to be an earthquake, there's going to be the sun going dark, uh, there's going to be a, a massive beam that breaks and falls in the, in the, the great temple, a big curtain is torn, all of these things are going to happen around the death of Jesus. Now, 
This is sort of a, a quick glimpse at the crucifixion of Jesus. Meanwhile, by the way, uh, they take his garments. Now, he would have had sort of, you know, back then they didn't go to Walmart and, and pick up some, some underwear, some Hanes, okay? Uh, so he would have had an inner garment and an outer garment. They took his outer garment. It had been sewn together, and so since it was one piece, they did not want to break it up. So uh, the men who were crucifying him actually are going to gamble over it because since they don't want to cut it up and divide the spoils among themselves, they just gamble over it so that someone can take his outer cloak home with them fair and square, take the whole thing. Now, here's the reason I tell you all of this. I tell you all of this because for us uh, as Americans, we look at this picture and we say, that had to be painful. Thank God that he did these things for me. We know that there were people who were mad. It's understandable to be mad. Everyone's confused. No one knows what's going on. Okay, we get all that. But is that true? Now, I want to read two passages to you. I'm going to read one passage out of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah would have written this book, let's say, this is not the exact year, but really close to this. Isaiah would have written this book in 700 B.C. Every Jew watching would have known the book of Isaiah. The second, the second thing that I'm going to read you is out of the book of Psalms. Psalms, this psalm would have been written by King David in about 1,000 BC. So for 700 to 1,000 years, everything that I am about to tell you was known by every Jewish person. And let's see what it says. Isaiah chapter 53, I'm going to start reading in verse 2. Hang with me, okay? Hang with me. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Who is he? This is the prophecy of the coming Messiah. Everyone knows this. This is messianic prophecy. They're waiting for a Savior to come. All of the Old Testament points to one person. We believe that is Jesus. And they're waiting for a Messiah. Even Jews today who do not believe that Jesus is that Messiah are still waiting for a Messiah. And these are their scriptures to tell them what the Messiah will be like. He didn't have an impressive form of majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. No appearance that we should desire him. How many drawings, painting pictures of Jesus do you have? How many physical descriptions of Jesus do you have? What did Jesus look like? We have no idea. And it was prophesied that we would have no idea. Now listen, this is not tarot card reading. This is not Miss Cleo. This is not, hmm, there's somebody in here whose name starts with a J. And John's in the back going, oh, that's me. This is not gesticulation. I know that's not a thing. But I know what else to say. It's not whatever that is. Verse 5, but he was pierced because of our rebellion. What does it mean he was pierced? Well, his hands and his feet was pierced. His side was pierced. It's pretty specific. If I say, how are you going to die? And you say, I'm going to be pierced. I'm like, what, are you going to get murdered? 
Interesting, huh? He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. Remember last week we talked about a scapegoat. And so the scapegoat is going to take the sins of the nation, and this is exactly what Jesus did. This is why he was crucified out of the city, because he is going to take the sins of the nation on himself. And we are healed by his wounds. Wounds, where he just, what wounds? Oh, yeah, he had a lot of wounds. And that is what heals us because it, blood is required to pay for sin. That's what every sacrifice was. Verse 6, we all went astray like sheep. Can I get an amen? Anybody go astray like sheep? Okay. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Your sin is placed on him. This is the prophecy that the Messiah is going to take upon himself, and he does it right here on the cross. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted. I mean, okay, first of all, they murdered him. He was oppressed. There were places he couldn't go, things he couldn't do. He had, to be, he had to be going places and doing things at night because he is always being watched. At some point, they took him to the edge of a cliff, trying to throw him off. They're trying to take him on trial. Yeah, he's oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Read back Luke chapter 23 is, is where we've been for the last couple of weeks. Read back Luke chapter 20 through 23. What did Jesus say when he was in trial? Very little. So much so that it was bugging Pilate. Why won't you speak? Says that he did not open his mouth. That's pretty specific. Hey, they're going to pierce me, and I'm not even going to say much about it. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and again, he is our sacrificial lamb, led to the slaughter. They literally put a cross on his back and lead him up to Calvary, Golgotha, the mountain of the skull. And like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. Well, who did he die with? Two thieves. These were not innocent thieves. These were guilty thieves that he died with. He says, not only am I going to be murdered, not only am I going to be pierced, I'm going to do it with the wicked. But he was with a rich man at his death. Joseph of Arimathea had to be a very wealthy man to have the tomb that he had. And he's buried in Joseph's tomb. So he dies with the wicked and he's buried with a rich man. Do you see how specific this is? This is just one passage. Because he had done no violence. Listen, Jesus is a historically accurate figure. In fact, you can prove that Jesus lived better than any other man in all of antiquity. Basically, anyone predating a birth certificate. We can prove that Jesus lived. There's more written about him. There's more manuscript copies of, of literature about him, biblical and extra-biblical, than anybody else in history. I mean, we can only throw up a couple names that have anything like him. Alexander the Great. It's about it. Jesus is a validated historical figure. We have a lot written about him, and he did no violence, just like was prophesied. Now, you're like, well, that's not that impressive. A lot of people live peaceful lives. Yeah, but not people who are prophesied to come and take ownership of the world. You typically do that by violence. He had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. He didn't lie either. What he said came true. In fact, he told them, I'm going to tear down this, this temple will be torn down. 
but I will rebuild it in three days. And they were like, you're nuts. It took 40-something years to build this temple. This temple is one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Well, in AD 70, that mug burns down, and they rip it all apart to get gold out from between the rocks. Not one rock lays on top of another. He didn't speak deceitfully. Everything he said was going to happen, happened. After his anguish, he will see light. After his anguish, he will see light. What does that mean, after his anguish, he'll see light? He'll get better? No, he's going to come back to life. Think about this. The resurrection means that his body will come back to life. How silly would it be to prophesy the resurrection of a spirit? We believe that a spirit is eternal. So spirit is eternal. There's no killing your spirit. There's only killing the vessel that contains my spirit, which is one of the hopes that we have as Christians, right? So it's not that his spirit will be resurrected. His spirit never died. His body, his actual physical body will come back to life and see light. And this was prophesied and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. You know over two billion people today claim to be Christians? I'm not saying everybody's nailing it. In fact, I'm not even sure we're all going to make it. But, tough crowd. You can see that he was given many as a portion. And he will receive the mightiest spool because he willingly submitted to death. The night that they came to get Jesus, Peter had a sword. Peter pulls some Robin Hood stuff, chops a dude's ear off. Jesus goes and puts the ear back on and says, no, 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 I go willingly. He went willingly to his death, which was prophesied. You could prophesy that about me all you want. I ain't going willingly. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. And was counted among the rebels. And was counted among the rebels. Was counted among the rebels. He took the place of a rebel, right? Barabbas was a rebel who was guilty of insurrection, of rebellion. Jesus switches with him. Counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sins of many and intercedes for the rebels. He took the place of a rebel. Now, that's just a few verses out of Isaiah 53. And everybody around watching Jesus be crucified knows it well. It will be a great topic of discussion. In fact, many priests will convert. Why? <laughs> because they believe the Scripture. Listen to what David wrote in, in Psalm 22, Psalm 22, 14 through 18. By the way, if you've never read Psalm 22, uh, if you know anything about the crucifixion of Jesus, if I just got up here and read to you Psalm 22 and didn't tell you where I was reading, you would think that I was in the New Testament because it so accurately describes uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. But I'm going to skip down to verse 14 for time's sake. It says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed. Not broken, but disjointed. Hanging on the cross. My heart is like wax melting within me. He sweat drops of blood, which we know is an actual physical condition that can happen under extreme duress. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Do you know what one of the very few words Jesus said while he was on the cross? Two words, I thirst. Of course, he was probably speaking in Aramaic, so I'm not sure what that was, but he said, I thirst. And they gave him some, some jacked up vinegar wine to drink. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. 
You put me into the dust of death, which they're going to kill him. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. And this is what happened, right? Everybody is around him. They're mocking him. They're spitting on him. They've stuck a, a, a big crown of thorns. And this is, this is not like the bird that you got in your foot outside, okay? These are thorns that they have jammed into the head of Jesus, okay? So they pierced my hands and my feet. This was written in 1000 B.C. Rome is not a thing in 1000 B.C. Crucifixion, it's argued that maybe the Assyrians were, were doing some, storm of, some, some form of crucifixion. But it is highly likely that David knew nothing, had never heard of crucifixion when he wrote this and prophesied about the Messiah that his hands and feet would be pierced. This is getting really specific. I can count all my bones. Well, his flesh was ripped off of him. People look and stare at me in number. They divided my garments among themselves and cast lots for my clothing. Now I'm a believer. Not only am I going to die, my hands and feet are going to be pierced. And we're, they're like, that's weird. That's a weird way to die for people to do your hands and feet. We've heard of cutting king's thumbs off before. But for your hands and feet to be pierced, how does that even kill someone? And, you know, they can't see that. But in hindsight, it's perfectly clear. But when he says, and when I die, they're going to gamble for my clothes. I wonder if anyone was reading David's work like, excuse me, <laughs> you're going to gamble for your clothes? That's weird. What are you writing? And they won't know for a thousand years what it means until one day it is abundantly clear. And this obscure sentence has been put in just for your faith. That 1,000 years before, it was prophesied that these Roman soldiers under the feet of Jesus would gamble for his clothes. How wild is that? How specific is that? 700 years before Jesus even comes. 1,000 years before Jesus even comes. We have all of this documented. All of this is preserved. All of this is actually validated through our archaeological findings. And not only that, but we have changed life after changed life of people who could popcorn up in here and give a testimony about what faith and what Jesus did right here has done for their life. Isn't that interesting? That is so clear cut. Just like many other things in your life, I said this a few weeks ago, and this is something I've been thinking about. You, you know, uh, in a, do, do you know that a good marriage is still 20% bad? Y'all are like, I don't know what to say. I'm going to say amen, but I don't want to say amen. <laughs> Can I just get an uh-huh? Even a good marriage is 20% bad. Okay? Even a good friendship is 20% bad. But the difference in that relationship is, are you focused on that 20% or the 80%? That's a complete mindset switch for your marriage, for any friendship. Your job, a good job, is still 80%, 20% bad. But the difference in whether or not you hate going to work is whether you're focused on that 20% that's bad or the 80% that's good. 
Let me tell you, your faith is a lot like that. There's 80% that we know. We have the history. We have the documents. We have what Jesus has done. We have changed life. We have testimony. We have the Holy Spirit. But you're just not sure who Adam and Eve's kids married. Like, who did they marry? That fits in that 5 10% of things that you don't know. And so we take that and throw our faith out the window. It'll all be made known someday. In fact, I'm going to propose to you that if it was all super knowable, it would be even be harder to have faith because you could just explain it away. Many of the things that have been the hardest to explain, we find later, are the very things that validate our faith even more. Because we, we were able to look back and say, okay, according to this lunar calendar, this thing would happen. And so this thing that was confusing for all of these years actually makes sense now that we have more information. See, when that more information came out and the Bible had not been correct all the time, it would have invalidated the Bible. The most complicated things sometimes are the very things that bring you closer in your faith. But we are, prof- we, we, we are focused on the little bit of things that we don't know and totally throw our faith away. I love this. I, I've got a couple charts up here. Uh, so I, I've been talking about, I've been talking about, um, did, we, did we get any of these charts on the, okay, go ahead and throw one up for me because I don't know which one is first. Okay, we've been talking about the prophecies of Jesus. I think this is so interesting and you're like, well, there's a cross in my way. I got you, I got you back, Jack. All right, here we go. So there are over 260 major prophecies about the Messiah that were fulfilled and so it is said that 48 of these prophecies, if you take, because we can't do sort of a mathematical breakdown, or we can't put an equation to all of these prophecies, but many of them uh, we can. So if you take 48 of these prophecies, uh, the odds of Jesus fulfilling just 48 of these prophecies, which is over, uh, you know, there's, wait, did I say 260? There's 63 major prophecies that were repeated 260 times. Regardless, uh, 48 of these prophecies, the odds of Jesus fulfilling 48 of these prophecies is 1 in, in uh, 10 to the power of 157. So basically, the odds of fulfilling 48 of these prophecies is 1 in whatever this number is to fulfill these prof- prophecies. I, I, don't, I don't know. The next one I've worked on, I think, I think, go to the next one. Uh, the odds of a man fulfilling eight prophecies are one in whatever this number is. I think that's a hundred quadrillion. That's just eight of the prophecies. He left so much for us to ponder on, for us to think about. He made prophecy so specific. So the guy who did this, I, I believe is a Russian guy who did this. Go, go ahead and take that off because that's going to be distracting. Thank you so much. He, he said that, uh, you know, fulfilling eight prophecies is one in a hundred quadrillion, right? And so he said, here's, here's how you look at this. Put a two-foot-tall fence around the state of Texas. Fill it with silver dollars. Fly over an airplane and drop a marked silver dollar. Stir them all up. Okay, and so I'm going to take one of you guys, blindfold you, send you out into the state of Texas and say, pick up a coin. The odds of you picking up that coin with the X on it 
are the same as Jesus fulfilling eight of these prophecies. We have all of this, but we fix our eyes on the things that we don't get. But something happened to me, and I don't understand it. Man, I don't understand it either. Church, there's just a, there, there's just a number of things that you're not going to know while you're here. There's just a number of things that you won't get while you are here. A lot of those we will know, and all we have to do is look inwardly. <laughs> Most of you are like me and say, listen, my problems boil down to one thing, and that is me. But there are some things that we just truly don't get. And the answer has always been this, fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, I've got to get to this. I spent way too much time on this. I'm going to go through the actual most important part of today uh, really quickly, and I can't take too long because we've got so many teachers um, that are going to murder me after this because your kids are wound up today. Okay, Luke 23, 32. Two other criminals were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. The one, uh, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, don't you even fear God since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's a couple things that I need you to know. Jesus is going to hang between two thieves. And this is a ploy of Satan to make him look like he is a common criminal, but the irony is that hanging between two thieves is exactly what he came to do. He did not come to an innocent world. He came to a guilty world, and there could not have been a better picture painted than how he died setting between two criminals, because I assure you, if Jesus comes and sits in a chair in here today, he's setting between two sinners. If he gets on this stage, he is sharing a stage, and he won't be for long because I'm going to be out. He is sharing a stage with a sinner. We are not innocent people. If you walked in here today thinking, well, these are all innocent, good, warm-hearted people, and then here's me and I don't fit in here, congratulations. You thought you came to church. You're in a lion's den, bro. We are broke as a joke, bankrupt spiritually without Jesus. We need him because of who we are. Because the heart of man is evil and it starts right here. Both had been founded guilty and even admittedly. And both of these thieves are dead already. Think about that. What's the point in yelling insults? Man, this guy's going to spend his last day on earth cussing out Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And the other is going to repent and recognize. Same circumstance, two completely different responses. Isn't that strange? How many of you have a sibling and that sibling has just 
gone a completely different direction than you. And then when you ask them, they start talking about how they grew up. And you're going, I was there. (laughs) I remember the same thing. Isn't it crazy how we can take the same circumstances and have a completely different response? What's the difference? Are you looking at the 80%? Or are you looking at the 20%? One will find death in death. The other will find life in death. Hours before he dies, he will find life. The question is, where do you look when you get to the end of yourself? One just acted out in anger. The other looked to Jesus. And he said, I don't know everything, but here's the things I do know. I'm guilty. He's not. I'm supposed to be here. He's not. Lord, remember me. Isn't that weird that he just said, Lord, remember me? Here's the interesting thing. If you just look at the words of the two thieves, the guy who's, I said, cursing Jesus, he didn't actually curse Jesus. What did he say to him? He said, let me me look back. He said, um, one of the criminals began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Isn't that the sinner's prayer? Didn't he actually say the right words? Hey, you're Jesus, right? Save me. But it's not the words we speak, it's the heart behind it. Can I get an amen, anybody? Because the other guy has no idea what to say. He just says, I know I'm a dead man without you. What can you do? I'm guilty, you're innocent, and the other is yelling insults. He says all the right words. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. It's the right words, it's the wrong heart. The other one just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, as you track through the New Testament, understand that paradise is always where Jesus is. That's what paradisio in the Greek, that's, that's what it means. That's where, that's where Jesus is. So there's, there can be a lot of confusing theology here if you don't know that. For, for some of you who are wondering, what exactly is paradise? It's where Jesus is. Today you will be with me in paradise. You know what's funny there? I don't see where they, they got the claw hammer out, pulled him off, and baptized him. I don't even think Jesus took him to church. Jesus just failed seminary. Today you'll be with me in paradise. You haven't taken one class You didn't get baptized, and he he didn't even say the sinner's prayer. What? Failed. We're not sending him out. Heretic. No. Jesus knows that it is his heart. And he says over and over, he told us, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him, well, I believe that God exists. Yes, so does Satan. But he doesn't believe that he is a savior, that he is innocent when I am guilty. 
See, this man believed the right things, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Well, you can't just do that. You can't be. Well, Jesus seemed to think so. The thief doesn't even know everything. He can't quote a single scripture. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe he could. He doesn't do it on the cross. He knows he fears God. He's guilty that Jesus is better, and Jesus is his only hope, and he submits to him. And that's all you got to do. Now we get into a whole just list of questions. Well, but so I can, I can, I can believe in Jesus and just, 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 just go act however I want to? No one is saying that. No. Let me tell you, when you believe in the Father, you act according to that belief. See, anything that you believe you act on. Some of y'all have cabinets stored full of rice and ammo because you think something bad about to go down. So you acted on it. Somebody swung at you one time and you ducked because you thought you were going to get punched. And you acted on it. Some of you got the courage to get a lady's number to ask her out because she looked at you and you thought, there's something there. And you acted on it. What you believe will then determine what you do. Your works are not how you obtain salvation. Your works are how you know you've obtained salvation. Works aren't how you get it. Works are how you know you got it. It all comes down to your heart's belief. Who is Jesus? He is a historical figure. You just have to determine who he was. He was either who he was, who he said he is, right? or he's a complete liar, or he was nuts. We didn't catch him in one lie, and he's given peaceful teachings that have changed so many lives in this place. And that leaves one option, baby. That's who he said he was. Jesus removed every obstacle for a man who was bound. How bound? <laughs> Nailed down. Nailed down and dying. Today you will be with me in paradise. So let me ask, where are you this morning? Because Jesus removes every obstacle. Oh, so the guy didn't die? No. That's not a thing. He died. His legs were smashed. He died. In body but now he lives eternally with the Father. This is one of the few men that we know that we will meet in heaven. We don't judge anybody's salvation. I, my, my job as a pastor is to tell you what the Bible says, not to tell anybody whether or not they're going to heaven. It is way above my pay grade, and thank God it is. Man, that would be exhausting. I would hate that. My job is to tell you what the Word of God says. There's only a few people. We know Judas is in hell because the Bible told us. We know the thief on the cross is in heaven because the Bible told us. And we know that he had very little reason to be there other than Jesus loved him. Yeah, well, I wish Jesus loved me like that. He was a condemned thief. What, 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 what again did you do that Jesus doesn't love you? For while we were yet sinners, it says in Romans, Christ died for us. Not after you got cleaned up while 
you were still in your sin, Christ died for you. Why then? Because that's how much you cost. That's how far removed you are. He fulfills every sacrifice, pays for our sin. And so I'll end with this while the worship team comes up. Will you accept him? Or will you blame him for your death? This was, this was the option that they got. By the way, the word for tree in Hebrew isn't just a live tree. It could be lumber. So we go all the way back to Genesis to the decision between the two trees. And hanging on two trees, two men have to make a decision. Life or the knowledge of good and evil. Choose Jesus for who he is or write my own code of morality and yell at Jesus for it. Accept my guilt in the thing or just blame others. Every person has to make this decision all the way from Genesis through. All the way from Genesis through. And you have to make this decision. Who is Jesus? When you're faced with that, you are faced with the tree of life, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You are faced with the conundrum of the two thieves. You have to make a decision. Who is Jesus? Some of you have been coming to church for a little while. I try not to get people to make emotional decisions. I try not to get people to make rash decisions. There, you don't have to know everything, but there are a few things that you do need to know. And let me tell you, some of you have been coming to church. Am I dead now? Okay, we'll fix that. Some of you have been coming to church long enough that you have all the knowledge needed to make this decision. And you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off because one day it will get easier. It will not get easier one day. It will not. Let me tell you, and I know that's hard to believe, it will not get easier. You think it's hard here? Try being nailed up there. The decision will not get any easier. And I think some of you, the Holy Spirit's been pressing. I, there, there are some people even talking to me about how the Holy Spirit's just dealing with your heart. And, 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 and you, you feel like, man, the Lord is just pushing me to do something. I've got to respond to something. He told me that even before service started today, I know that the Spirit is working. And there are some people who need to say, you know what? That's me. He is telling me I've got to make a decision. And church, I'm going to ask you, listen, you say this is my first time. Okay, fine, you're excused. But still, put your, put your number down. If the Holy Spirit's working on you, bro, if this is your first time here, I don't care. You can do this today. But uh, write down on your connection card. We'll talk later. Whatever it takes. But if the Lord is dealing with your heart and you need to say, I believe that Jesus paid for my sins and I need to take him up on it. He offered, he offered to buy this piece of real estate and today I've decided to sell. Man, if that's you, I want you 
to make that decision today. Some of you say, I've made that decision a long time ago and I've not been holding up my end of the deal. That's fine, man. I want you to do it. The worship team's going to play. I want you to deal with the Lord. Write down on your connection card. We want to walk with you. We want to pray with you. But listen, if the Lord has talked to you, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, and you said, I need to get saved today. I want you to come up when this team is when the worship team is playing. I got a prayer team, prayer team, go ahead and come to the front. I want you to come up now. Man, don't even wait. Don't even wait. You guys just come up and meet with the prayer team as soon as we're playing. We'll be here for a while. You know what I understand? Maybe you gotta you gotta wait and work up the courage. But I'm telling you, don't wait. Make that decision. I'm gonna ask you guys just to pray with me. Lord just just deal us that deal us that conviction. Teach, rebuke, correct and train us your word as you said you were going to but Lord I know that there are people who need to make decisions Father I pray that you will put a fire under them and help them uh, help them make that decision Father help them run toward you and, and, and God I pray that they will hear those words you will be with me in paradise thank you for all of your provisions help us to bring glory to your name in Jesus name guys are going to come forward. In fact, y'all go ahead and come on up. They're going to pass baskets. That's part of the way that we worship is with tithe and offering. And we're proud of how we distribute all those things. But uh, also, if you have a connection card, man, throw throw something in that uh, on that connection card and put it in. We want to be with you. But best case scenario, man, we want you to come up and just uh, speak with our prayer team and uh, pray and listen. If you need to receive Jesus, today is the day. Y'all stand and worship with us.